two mad dogs and Englishmen endeavoring manfully to keep this on a something like a regular schedule. So uh, here we are again on a Wednesday afternoon recording a podcast. Charles, this is becoming dangerously close to our regularly scheduled event. I know. And just as we got into the swing of things, we're going to have a Christmas break in yes. which people will be devoid of our offerings. But then... New Year's resolutions, and we're back in the game. <laughs> Indeed. Speaking of Christmas, two things I want to talk about. One slightly more lighthearted that I'll start with, and then I want to ask you about um, holiday travel. Uh, but I was wondering, you know, uh, retail. Christmas always puts us in mind of what's happening in the retail part of the economy. And I have a, a slight feeling that there's a kind of retail death spiral going on. That um, as online competition from Amazon and other sources siphon a bit of revenue away from stores, they have less money to put into things like customer service and putting lots of inventory on the shelves and that sort of thing, uh, which in turn gives you more of an incentive to shop online instead. And I was thinking about this, I was at a sporting goods store the other day. Um, by the way, I know that every time I've spoken on this podcast ever about being in a store, I've been buying ammunition, but I was, in fact, in a Cabela's um, buying some ammunition. And it's still kind of hard to find, you know, so when you find some, you don't want to uh, to walk away. But I ended up leaving a whole uh, basket of the stuff uh, abandoned because by the time I got to the registers, there was a line that looked like it was going to take an hour to uh, check out because it's height of holiday season. They had like two registers open. Now, I understand why stores don't have the kinds of resources to put into the stuff they used to. But, man, it seems like if they want to survive, they're going to have to do a better job. My operating assumption is that we will end up with the vast majority of retail activity being delivery-based, possibly by drone. And then... (laughs) We will have a bunch of high-end stores which will retain their cachet and then a bunch of stores that are set apart from the online experience because they sell items you would want to see or touch before. Mm. Like avocados. Yeah, or or, um, guns. Huh. I think a lot of people would order guns if they could. But they can't. They can't. And I, <laughs> I suppose that's a different category. But Yeah. Um, you're Since you're not an American and you're not nearly as old as I am, you probably are not familiar with a company that used to exist called Best Products. You I'm know not. Best? So Best Products was a weird sort of 1960s, I guess, 1970s, early 1980s business model. Best was a uh, mail-order catalog company. But they had showrooms all over the country. So you could go into a best showroom and um, look at the stuff, and then you would order it, and it would be uh, delivered to you. So it was a store that wasn't really a store exactly. And um, that seems to me like a a sort of likely model for a lot of stuff going forward. Like um, people are going to want to try on clothes and look at them, but it might very well be the case that you go into a shop and try something on, and rather than walking out with it, you uh, get it in the mail the next day or well, the day after. There's a less salutary version of that, which is people going to 
physical stores, looking around, sizing up the products, and then ordering them on a- on Amazon. And there was a joke. Yeah, in for, fact, I, go ahead, please. There was a joke for a while that Best Buy was Amazon's showroom, and yeah. Best Buy, to its credit, uh, responded to that by putting up a large sign. At least they did in the Best Buy near me, saying if this product is cheaper on Amazon, we'll match the price. Yeah. Which is a smart thing to do. I was actually in a shop the other day. I can't remember exactly what it was. It might have been the same um, one I was talking about earlier where someone actually said that. Wait, I'm not going to buy this here, but I like to come in and look at it and then I'll you know, I'll order it online. So th- there is that sort of thing of, of retailers being converted effectively into showrooms. Although in some cases, as you're saying, showrooms uh, that don't get a piece of the sales on the back end. So I don't know if you've ever had anything like this in the United States, Kevin, but we had, I think still have, a shop in England, a chain of shops called Argos. And Argos, Argos yeah. you know Argos? Mm-hmm. Argos works, for those listeners who don't know, like no other shop I've ever been to. Argos has almost nothing on its shelves, although there are a few either lost leaders or demonstration items. Argos has about 30 or 40 stand-up desks on which there are large catalogs. And each shopper goes in, looks through these glossy catalogs, and then using a tiny little blue pen that is on a chain next to the catalog, fills in the numbers of the items that they want, takes it to a cashier, waits a couple of minutes, and then from the enormous warehouse that is the vast majority of the Argos store, these items are brought out. And then they go, (laughs) 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 is there anything like that in America? I mean, stand-up comedians in England do bits about Argos, where they say Argos is the store that said, we think shopping should be like this. And then every other store in the world went, nope. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think we've got anything quite like that that I can think of. I don't know why I know Argos. Um, I must have gone into one looking for something at some point. But um, I do remember the, the shop. I tell you, the closest thing you have got is IKEA can work like that, right? Where you go sure. through with a pencil and you write down the number and then you go yourself, which you don't do in Argos. You go yourself to the aisle that it references and you pull off the flat pack from the uh, from the shelf. Yeah. Do you um, do you go to stores or do you try to avoid that? We we mostly order from Amazon. And mm. other online stores. There was a, a service. So you totally given into the new world order. You're a complete sellout. You're saying largely a complete transnational globalist. <laughs> well, you know, with our credit card, we got the subscription immigrants. to this uh, service called Shop Runner a while back. And oh yeah, sh- yeah. And Shop Runner is great because one of the disincentives for a lot of stores is that you check out and then it says, and $19 of shipping. And I always think, well, in that case, I'm going over the road to the shop. But Shop Runner wipes that away. Now, it's not particularly ubiquitous, unfortunately. But uh, where Shop Runner um, has made me even more of a New World Order globalist 
uh, is that it takes, you know, say, Saks Fifth Avenue or whatever, and it gives you free shipping from there as well. So it essentially turns it into Amazon Prime. Yeah. But no, there there are some things we haven't changed. I mean, for example, our neighbors get all their groceries delivered. We don't do that. We go over to Publix. Um, the world's, the world's greatest supermarket um, chain. Welfare. Publix. What are you talking about? <laughs> Publix is the greatest. Super- How dare you? You're going to start. Oh my goodness! I hope we have some Floridian listeners. They're going to show up at your house. <laughs> Publix is the Whole Foods. Like a grown up. Come on. We actually don't have a Whole Foods that close to us, but we do have a Fresh Market, which is similar. Savages. There is a Whole Foods up maybe ten miles away. Uh, retail stuff. Anything else we should say about it? I wrote a big thing you may remember about dead shopping malls for National Review a few years ago. And this is a thing in cities all over the country where shopping malls, which used to be these weird kind of community centers, have collapsed and they're either vacant and no longer being used or being repurposed. Some of them have been turned into things like churches or office space. I think one I was reading about has been turned into a retirement home. Uh, made it a place for elderly people, which, of course, they kind of were before that. So it's just sort of uh, completing the transformation, I suppose, of shopping malls into places like that. But um, there is something lost, I think, with the decline of um, you know retail as a kind of shared space yeah. and shared experience. Um, I mean, that certainly, that certainly was the case with the transformation of the old downtown business uh, centers to... Uh, suburban malls and strip malls and things like that really changed the character of cities and I think changed the character of city life. And now we're going to see another transformation along those lines. Um, I will bet that it's going to make American cities even more generic and interchangeable than they already are. At least the big ones, you know, where Houston looks a lot like Los Angeles, which looks a lot like Chicago, which looks a lot like Philadelphia, which looks a lot like, Every other place. I mean, the weather's different, and I guess the uh, the foliage is different. If you're down in, in Florida, where you are, uh, you'll see palm trees, um, whereas you don't see them in other places. I love palm trees, by the way. Um, palm trees always make me feel like something good is going to be happening to me. I'm always in something happy is normally going on in my life, and there there are palm trees around. But um, then you worry about that some too. That's uh, this sort of creeping. Uh, uh, indeed, even maybe even accelerating homogenization of American life. I do, but there's a collective action problem in that I worry about it until I see the savings. Right. And I think most other people do as well. And no one's going to put themselves at a disadvantage for the abstract um, principle of anti-homogeneity. I suppose, but I mean people do make different decisions on that. Like people will endure a higher cost of living often to live in a place that feels to them more culturally distinct, like Austin or San Francisco or New York city or something like that. True. The energy is in the other direction, but that is true. Yeah. Although maybe there are other reasons for that. I don't think people are leaving New York primarily because of the prices. I think there are other things going on there. Yeah, that's true. It's uh, these are complicated stories. 
Uh, before we move on to, I guess, regular political type stuff, oh, one thing I just wanted to mention, just because it's such a horrible story, I don't believe in curses and supernatural things of that sort. But man, if there's a cursed country, it's got to be Haiti. Did you read about this tanker explosion business? I did not. What happened? Well, so there was a gasoline tanker truck that exploded and it killed some enormous number of people. Like it killed 50 people and um, injured a lot more. And when I first heard the story, I imagine I had the same reaction as everyone else did. I was like, well, where did this thing explode that a truck explosion managed to kill 50 people? It might have been more than that. I don't remember the numbers off the top of my head. So what it turns out is it's um, it's an even worse story than that. Um, Haiti, because it's got all sorts of, of problems, has had a real problem for the last um, several months to a year with its fuel distribution system because these criminal gangs have taken over uh, the fuel distribution networks, made it very difficult for people to um, to buy gasoline. So this truck apparently swerved to miss a motorcycle and turned over and fell on its side. And a big crowd of people swarmed the truck to try to steal the gas. And at that point, the uh, truck exploded. So these people, you know, ended up getting killed because they were in such a desperate situation that they were willing to try to siphon off gas from a, uh, from a wrecked tanker truck. That is a failed state right there. Yeah, kind of kind of makes... Uh, helps you put some things in perspective for all the things we complain about with our uh, government and the state of our society and whatnot. I mean, goodness gracious, at least we're not Haiti is a pretty low bar to clear, but still. Well, I, I, I don't think we need to go anywhere near that. I would say goodness gracious. Thank goodness we're not Germany, but I know you and I don't agree on this. <laughs> yeah, I like Germany. But um, what's your brief with Germany? Besides, I mean, well, historical stuff. You oh, I was going to say, how long have you got? <laughs> I just, you know, I do. I just view the vast majority of nations in the world as being anodyne and, you know, softly illiberal and post-political almost. I, I did you read? Uh, did you read David Harsani's uh, F Europe book? I haven't yet. I'm looking forward to it for my. It's pretty good. I mean, I disagree with everything in it, but it's pretty good. Yeah, I, I mean, my biggest my biggest problem is the post political part. I I don't see the point in engaging in politics in Britain, for example, beyond a handful of narrow questions. Brexit was one of them. Because do you think so much of government's been handed over to unaccountable technocrats? That well, there's no real chance to achieve any kind of meaningful reform. Yeah, it's partly that, but but it's also that there's just not very much difference between somebody who considers themselves to be on the far left and somebody who considers himself to be on the far right. There's there is no there's no I think great there's political a good diversity of between say uh, Nigel Farage and Tony Blair, you know, even far left. Okay, sort of but but left. let's look at the issues that motivate profound disagreement and debate in the United States and map them onto Britain. It doesn't work. So, Immigration. Yeah, that, that is a, a good exception. I'll give you that. And there are a few exceptions to it. But broadly speaking, you have a consensus around not just single-payer healthcare, but single-payer healthcare that is run by the government. 
You have a consensus around gun control. You have a consensus around free speech, that consensus being that it should be sharply limited. You have a consensus around the optimal level of taxation, that being around 40% of GDP. You have a consensus around trade, which is a good one, which is pro-free trade. And I am pleased that that is a British consensus, but it is one nevertheless. There's just not much to argue about. And if you are in whichever direction an apostate in Britain, then you're a weirdo on the fringes. There mm. is no great constituency for you. And I don't mean that from a from a writing or political perspective. I mean that from a personal perspective. One of the nice things about America, as we have talked about a great deal on this podcast over the years, is that if you're a Mormon, there is a place for you. There are people who agree with you. There are communities for you. If you are uh, a surfer dude, you know, there are many places you can go. And but, in La Jolla, if you're Mitt Romney, gets you both. But in Britain, if you're a Mormon, you're kind of a weirdo, right? And there's and and you you know, people might be polite to you, but your worldview is just not only um, not shared, which is fine. It's crushed. It's absolutely crushed. Yeah, I mean, I don't disagree with you that England is basically an insipid, clammy swamp of conformism and moral cowardice. Where are you going to be spending Christmas? <laughs> By the way, so is Germany, and it's worse. <laughs> oh, man, and and I know, that's, just before that's we move on... great what about right there. That's, just just that's, before that's we move scary. on from this, I know that you're a big fan of Switzerland. <laughs> Switzerland actually yes. does get around this a little bit, because it's hyper-localist. Yes. So that's well, a good thing about saying, Switzerland. Yeah, and that's part of, I think, what makes the uh, Scandinavian countries work, too. Like, uh, you know, people think of, you know, Sweden and Norway and places like that as being these, um, you know, kind of homogenous, uniform, national welfare states. But, you know, in a lot of these places, um, you get things like uh, health services being provided, administered at what we would call the county level rather than, you know, at the national level. Um, if I recall correctly, there isn't a single like national health service in in Switzerland for, right. or Sweden rather. And, and, well, there's no health service in, in Switzerland. And so when I go home and I see my friends and I love them all and they have, you know, for Britain wide ranging political views. I think they do, but they think I am quietly mad. Don't a lot of Americans think that too? <laughs> Well, yeah, sure, but but the thing is, is that the reasons that my friends think I'm quietly mad, um, are, are are not shared by probably a majority of Americans, even though the other half might think that that I'm yeah. quietly mad. I mean, you know, my friends say things like, "Oh, so, you know, like they kind of titter." They say, say, the, say the thing about well, people should be allowed guns again. <laughs> say, say the thing <laughs> about abortion should be legal again. Like oh, they're, they're poking me. Like say the thing about absolute free speech again. You know, and then they kind of think it's hilarious, right? Yeah. Um, this Although, is, in fairness, you in, in England, you can't really be considered crazy because you went to Oxford, so you're eccentric. Well, that's right. That's right. <laughs> anyway, I just I I find the the conformism 
Um, and and by the way, I, I, I'm not, you know, I don't think that, that the United States should invade Britain and, and, you know, fix this because people are very happy with that conformism. It's actually a sense of, it provides a sense of national pride and, and cohesion. And, and, and they very much dislike um, the, the sort of fractured and, and um, disunited nature of America. And they see it as a country that is not at ease with itself. Yeah. And there is a lot of that. They're not wrong about that. Well, right. But, but, but also, you know, unity, and you've written really movingly about this, like, unity is not something you should actually um, strive for uh, in a country that doesn't have it because you, you can only achieve it by force. Yeah. Although there, there are aspects of that kind of cooperative and in, indeed sometimes conformist culture that I'm starting to find more appealing in some ways. So obviously you don't want a government that tries to enforce these sort of things, but one of the things that I think that really makes sense and kind of works it about in a place like Germany or especially in a place like Switzerland is this national sense as part of the political and civic culture that, well, these are the rules and we, we, we follow them even if we don't agree with them and we have a process for changing them if we don't like them. You know, Switzerland's an interesting example because it's so hard to change anything politically because of their kind of, uh, well, they have a sort of electoral college for, for everything where, you know, big changes have to be approved both at the national level and then in a majority of the cantons as well, which um, you know tends to make it hard to do things that don't have a lot of consensus behind them. But um, so while I certainly wouldn't want a, uh, you know, kind of heavy handed Singapore approach to uh, doing those sort of things, and I certainly don't like the idea of a kind of fervent spiritual cult of, of national unity, the sense of, well, so far as public things are concerned, we have a um, set of obligations to citizens to kind of cooperate and deal with one another as people we trust and value, I think, is um, something you see much more strongly in much of Europe than you do in the United States. And that is something that is worth having, I think. I mean, I, I, I believe, as, as I think you know, that a lot of our problems politically and socially have to do with lack of trust in one another, lack of trust in institutions. And that sort of lack of trust makes cooperation difficult, but it works both ways. Lack of cooperation also, I think, undermines trust. So in places where there isn't cooperation, you don't get a, um, you don't get a sense that there should be cooperation. You know, lack of cooperation tends to be self-reinforcing where people say, well, that person doesn't cooperate people like us they don't play by the same rules we do therefore we're not going to honor those rules when it comes to them i agree with an awful lot of what you've just said i would only point out that there is something worse than a lack of trust in institutions and that is a trust in institutions that don't deserve it and and or excessive obedience even to institutions that do deserve it because that prevents it criticism and reform are the things that are necessary and without going down this this rabbit hole which is a hobby horse of mine it's a mixed metaphor the british attitude towards i think you could probably ride a hobby hobby horse down a rabbit hole (laughs) provided it was like a bugs bunny size rabbit yeah it would have to be the size of the hole at the end of fantastic mr fox where they've been at it with the mechanical shovels as Roald Dahl says yeah i love that movie by the way i didn't read the book I, I haven't seen the movie, but I've read the book. 
Anyhow, the British attitude towards the NHS is just absolutely baffling to me because the the attitude is as summed up. This is a disastrous disgrace of a service that took a year to do my mother's hip operation. Also, how dare you criticize it? It's the envy of the world. Yes. Just baffling. Which it isn't, by the way. Just baffling. Yeah. So speaking of England, though, you were saying that you've actually um, modified some some travel plans. And I thought that was maybe an interesting thing to talk about because I imagine a lot of people this time of year are making similar decisions. Yes. Well, we're going to England next week. And in order to go, we have to take a test, COVID test before we leave and take one when we land. The second one, I think, is utterly absurd and then we have to take one before we come back to the u.s are they still doing the day two test right that's what we have to do or at least within two days and if oh, so not literally when you land yes no we are we're going to a drive through covid testing center at heathrow airport but i mean are you required to do that test right when you land or it's the 48 hour thing it's the 48 hour thing we okay. just chose I to they might have changed it yeah well my dad pointed out that if we do it really quickly and then we get our test results really quickly then we are released from any of the restrictions providing the test is negative of course gotcha anyhow i am therefore somewhat nervous not because i'm scared of covid i'm not i'm fully vaccinated the omicron strand doesn't seem to be especially bad anyhow but i am nervous that i will contract it have some you know impotent asymptomatic strain uh, but have a test that comes back positive and then be told i can't go which would be a real problem it's a little harsh (laughs) (laughs) give give omicron it's due (laughs) well anyhow i'm i'm hopeful this won't happen because it would mean i couldn't go and then the two and a half years in which my parents have not seen their grandkids will be elongated yet again and anyhow so i was supposed to go to new york for the national review christmas party and it was pointed out to me that if i do that i will be leaving mostly covid free north florida and going to covid happy new york to a party where people will be packed into a room talking loudly at one another and that this might not be the best thing to do if I'm worried about a positive test ruining my entire Christmas itinerary. So sadly... So you're saying saying our National Review colleagues just seem diseased to you? Well, I don't think any of them have the long-in-the-making Christmas family plans contingent upon the the party and so i am going to bow out i'm very disappointed by this but i am uh less worried about the prospect of you crying uh because of my absence than of my mother crying because of my absence and so i've i've balanced them carefully kevin and decided my mum's tears would probably do more oh that's probably that's probably true that's probably the right calculation also, it's probably the right calculation because I won't won't be there either. Uh huh. Well, there you go. So you won't yeah. you won't be crying. Yeah. I um. Yeah. Parties. Hmm. 
I like parties. I like New York. I wish I could go and see everyone. But um, I spoke to a doctor friend of mine and he laughed on the phone and said, I wouldn't do that if I were you. <laughs> and um, he's not the sort to scoff. So My doctor laughs at me all the time. <laughs> oh, wow. oh, well, I mean, he often laughs at me, but... Um, <laughs> Yeah, he's not my doctor for the record. He's a doctor friend oh, of mine, which means doctor. I don't have to pay him. That's even better, except in in gin when he comes over. Well, gin's not that expensive. No, even good gin's not that expensive. Nope. That must be the worst for doctors, by the way. Doctors and lawyers are always getting, "Oh, you're a doctor. Well, let me tell you about my hip." You know. Well, or, do you know? Do I a- used to think that. I used to think that, and I was very careful and uh, cautious in bringing up medical questions that i have with him but then i realized that every time i see him he asks me a, a hundred political questions what do you think about this what do you think about this bill what do you think the scene is what do you think about biden's approval rating i had to think about this and, and i thought well i'm doing the same thing mm. that's funny one of the reasons i i don't like parties all that much is because people often want to fight with me about politics at, at parties and i i tell them i only do this when i'm getting paid yeah <laughs> Sorry, I don't, I don't talk to amateurs. I don't do it for free. Well, funny enough, I actually very much enjoy talking politics with my doctor. Yeah, and with there's you know, smart, open-minded uh, people of goodwill, yeah. of course, it's different. You know, I knew a guy uh, who was a um, surgeon who um, did really nothing but heart transplants. That was kind of his business. And um, people would sometimes ask him, you know, about other kinds of things. And he would say, you know, I just, I just do heart transplants. I really don't know about your, your elbow. And, um, and sometimes people would press him and he would say, look, you know, um, half my patients die in a good year. <laughs> do you, do you really want to have this conversation? Cause that's what I do. I change people's hearts. And, uh, that would usually apparently kind of in the conversation. I think conversation. it takes a special sort of person to do that job. And it does something to them over the course of their lives too, where they talk about, life and death in a way that i can't fathom because they have yeah, to he had some 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 pretty hard bark on him as they say yeah no i mean they have to yeah and it, it almost it almost reminds me of you know accounts of generals in wars where they sit down and very calmly say right well i guess we'll lose 40 percent of our platoon in in this endeavor and you know that's that's real people i mean eisenhower i often wonder this with eisenhower just it did weigh on him but he he was nevertheless able to bear it i don't know if i'd be that calm it's a letter that lincoln sent to grant i want to say uh where he writes something like we have enabled one another to do horrible things right yeah. You know, funnily enough, the the person it really profoundly affected that that you wouldn't necessarily think it would have affected is Churchill. I mean, mm, in, yeah, in, in uh, Andrew Roberts's book, he describes how Churchill spent the two days before D Day, and you know, Churchill vacillated between wanting to go himself, and he tried to go over because he wanted to be Henry V and almost sobbing into his whiskey because he was so scared that it would end up being the Somme and that it would be his fault. 
Yeah. And, you know, part of that was because he wanted to delay D-Day. He was always the next year guy on, on D-Day. But part of that was temperamental. There are some people who can do this, but 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 suffer more for it. And from what I've read about Eisenhower and Churchill, I mean, Eisenhower was not a monster. The, the, the man had feelings, but he was just exactly the guy you want to fulfill that role because he wasn't sentimental. Didn't have excessive feelings. No. There's a play called uh, Hurley Burley. It was made into a movie some years ago. And there's a great scene toward the end where someone has just kind of betrayed someone else in some particularly uh, callous way. And one of the characters says to the other one, it's like you don't have any feelings at all. And the response is, I have feelings. I just don't have your feelings. Yeah. <laughs> Which uh, I kind of like. So travel uh, revisions. How's South Florida right now? Because I'm heading that way myself and I'm trying not to catch the plague. I think Florida is pretty free of COVID at the moment, it being somewhat seasonal. Yeah, every time I want to fly to Miami, I just kind of feel like I'm going to catch something. I don't think you're more likely to catch it in Miami than anywhere else. I, I, and I think you're less likely. Yeah, it's just the tropical feeling of the place. Like yeah. You get malaria or yellow fever or something. You know? What was the one, one a while of those back? diseases you Zika. read about in Victorian novels? Yeah, Deng fever. I think it's dengue. It's Is it dengue fever? I've never heard yes. it pronounced. There you go. Thank you. Well, now I've you only have. read it. Yeah, dengue fever. That's that. Dengue fever is really common in the South. You know, I caught the dengue fever. Well, yeah. you know, you know why? It's partly because I've read it, and it's partly because I speak French. And in French, that would be that's how you would pronounce that word instinctively. Yeah. Yeah, um, that's a good excuse, any, I suppose. But um, okay. I do that all the time with words I've read and haven't uh, pronounced. Uh, I think I even read something about this one time. I remember uh, the word epitome sticks, sticks out in my mind. For epitome. But, yeah, epitome. Which is <laughs> and awry, I thought, was awry. And I managed <laughs> to read. And this is oh, the okay. most baffling to me, is that I managed to read the entire first Harry Potter book when I was, I guess, 14 pronouncing Hermione's name in my head as Hermione. And I don't know why, because a year earlier at school, I had been in Shakespeare's A Winter's Tale. And of course, the main character, or at least the character around which the entire play revolves, is Hermione. And I knew this. And you probably knew at least one Penelope, you know, another sort of (laughs) similar. I actually heard someone mispronounce it that way that one time. It's a funny story. But um, you know, other sort of you know Greek derived names. Well, I made a I made a fool of myself when I was interviewing Arjit Pai at the NR event in DC a few years ago because somebody handed me a question from the audience and I had never heard the word Huawei pronounced. Now, there's no reason I should have known that. In fairness, yeah. But I said Huawei because Huawei. that's what it looks like. <laughs> And he sort of looked yes. at me and said, "Do you mean Huawei?" <laughs> I I'm guess. sure he's very, very uh, forgiving about that. Oh, he's a great guy. I liked him a lot. Yeah, he is. Um, okay. It was actually quite funny Tell because that. it was. I mean, what are the chances that on the same stage at the same time in the same place you would have two Indians from Kansas, 
Right, that's not a particularly common combination, and yet we had that with uh, with Ramesh and Arjit Pai. I, I I don't know where Ovik Roy is. His family is from originally, but I thought at the time if we if we put them all on the stage together, we'd probably have a statistical <laughs> delight. Yes. I believe uh, he's from Northeast people, but he's a uh, he's a Texan now. Last time, yes, he is. So. Yeah, oh, I saw him recently. He's, he's a great guy too. There's another uh, easy to mispronounce thing because it looks like his name should be Avic. Oh, totally, totally. That that's that that's only the product of having been told that I pronounced it. You got right. the wrong vowel in there. And the other one is Rick Brookheiser told me that Roger spelt Taney, who wrote the Dred Scott decision, is actually pronounced Tawny. Yeah. But, I mean, how on earth? English is a joke. How on earth would you know that? <laughs> yeah. Hard to, um, hard to figure out. So one actual political thing I thought we might talk about a little bit, which is a, it's a line of argument I've been hearing that really bothers me, and I wrote a little piece about it. Um, there are a lot of people, particularly on, well, all of them on the right, who have a very strong interest in minimizing what happened on January 6th and thereabouts. And, uh, you know, Hannity is a good example of this, where he was on his radio show the other day, which I listened to in traffic for my sins, and saying, well, why do we care so much about this riot? I mean, think about how many riots there have been over the last couple of years, and uh, why make such a big deal about this one? Now, I kind of suspect that he um, is genuinely as dumb as the character he plays on television, or at least close to it. But I don't think he's dumb enough to not not understand that. And so the example I I offered by way of illumination was, well, there were something like 23,000, 22,000 homicides in 2020. But if one of them had been the president of the United States, we would have made a big deal about it. Um. You know, it's not a big deal because the president is some special, sacred, holy person, but because crimes of this sort have a particular political character, which makes them much more salient issues for us. That's why we treat political corruption uh, generally as a more serious matter, both legally and, and morally and culturally, than we do, say, ordinary business corruption. It's why nobody would care about Hunter Biden's shenanigans if his father were the, the president of a office supply company rather than president of the United States of America. And I don't think this needs to be explained to people exactly, but I have taken the time to try to explain it to people anyway, and with the results that you might imagine. I agree. I, I'm... I suppose simultaneously, I hope not paradoxically of the view that we're far too scared in general of of freak occurrences and that there are certain freak occurrences that we should be scared of or at least we should treat differently than the others. There was a piece in Reason magazine, which I like a great deal, on the 10th anniversary of 9-11, I think it was written by Ronald Bailey, who's a science critic. And he calculated that since September 12th, which incidentally is, is a thing that people who write about this do, 
like saying since 1945. A grand total of 30 Americans had been killed in terrorist incidents inside the United States. And the overall gist of this piece was you should be a lot less worried about terrorism than you are, and you should be more worried about being struck by lightning because more <clears throat> Americans had been struck by lightning. And I think that's true in some ways, uh, yes. Uh, insofar as we are contriving public policy, we shouldn't be uh, of the view that that terrorism is this enormous threat that requires us to upend our constitution and law and practices and so on. But at the same time, it does matter how you die. And sometimes statistical analyses don't quite capture it. I mean, on your point about riots or well, say and, and murders. The reason for that is, if I can interrupt real quick, is that what's involved in an act of terrorism is not just the loss of life, as bad as that is. And as much as we uh, mourn those people and, and lament their deaths, the uh, implications of terrorism are specifically political in a specific way. That's why we have a word for it. Um, you know, when someone goes into a... Um, I don't know, somewhere, and they shoot up a bunch of people in a drug deal gone wrong or an armed robbery gone wrong or something like that, that's bad. And uh, we don't want those people to be dead. We don't want that kind of thing to um, be normal or common in our society, although tragically it is. Um, But there aren't any particular public implications of those sorts of crimes. They aren't something that implicate politics in a particular kind of way. Right. So... You know, we can say, um, I mean, the example I always use is the, you know, the shark and the bumblebee. And we worry about shark attacks, but bees kill like orders of magnitude more people uh, in a typical year than shark attacks do. You know, the animals that are most likely to kill you are mosquitoes, bees, cows. A lot of people get killed by cows, um, pet dogs. And in terms of wild animal attacks, you know, you're a lot more likely to be killed by a moose if you encounter one, than you are by a, um, a shark. Moose, as it turns out, are really uh, pieces of work. So, um, but those are things that are um, all in the same category of things, you know, animal attacks. Now, I understand why we worry about shark attacks, because the water is mysterious and sharks are particularly scary animals, whereas, you know, mosquitoes are hard to really be terrified of on an individual basis, even though they kill a lot of people. Um but, you know, terrorism, political assassinations, things like that, the impact of a political assassination is not the loss of one person's life. It's a much bigger thing. Right. And and that, I think, is, is my first objection, as it was yours, that it is true on paper that the Islamic extremists who shot at Theodore Van Gogh were targeting one person. But really what they were targeting is anyone who dares to stand up and oppose them. Right, in a way of life. Yes. So you can't you can't take that Microsoft Excel style approach to political violence. But also um, if you do, you end up flattening distinctions in a way that really undermines meaning. And you know, it would not have been particularly well received if on the evening of September 11th, 2001, George W. Bush had said, well, don't worry, the vast majority of the buildings in the United States are okay. <laughs> right. 
Uh, or, well, it was two skyscrapers out of however many there are in New York. The fact yeah, is... Well, you'll hear things about, you know, the sort of other moral illiteracy where people will say things like, well, you know, cigarettes have killed more people than the Holocaust. So we should think of these tobacco ex- executives as being worse than Hitler. Not exactly. <laughs> That's not exactly how that works. No, and also we, in the law, quite rightly distinguish between different sorts of killing. And there is a big difference between the way we treat somebody who murders somebody on purpose, especially, and whether we should or not is a separate question, if that person murders someone on purpose for their religion or race, uh, and somebody who is guilty of at best criminal negligence. And again, to flatten these distinctions, I think is sophistry, and I do agree with you, that's exactly what they're doing when it comes to January 6th. It's just a building. No, the US Capitol is not just a building in the same way as the Sistine Chapel is not just a building. These things have real meaning within our society for an awful lot of people, and those who attack them know why they did so. And to go back to the 9-11 comparison, the Twin Towers were not just a building. The Pentagon was not just a building. The Capitol, if it had been attacked then, was not just a building. There is a reason that Al-Qaeda wanted the Twin Towers. They thought that they were a sign of American commercial might. The World Trade Center, they were named um, appropriately. The Pentagon, likewise, is the head of American military might. It's not just a building. And, you know, if 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 Al-Qaeda had on 9-11 taken out at random 19 Burger Kings, then, yeah, actually, <laughs> that might have been a, just a, a few buildings. But these were not just a building, and what happened on January 6th was not just a building either, any more than when Antifa gets all riled up, it attacks the, the courthouse for no reason. As, as, a, as a former Burger King employee, I can tell that your McDonald's bias is coming out there in your choice of targets. Exactly. That's what I, well, I, when I was there, I was, um, uh, I was part of the Burger King terrorism task force. You see, that's how. Yeah. But no, I, I, I think you're right, and... and you know, as you say, it would have been obvious to all of the people making that argument that we were not just yeah. talking about a person if some crazy leftist had murdered Donald Trump while he was president. You, you think yeah. they'd have been running around saying, well, he's just a guy? <laughs> and the point I guy. keep making about January 6th that people seem intent on not understanding because they have very strong incentives not to understand is that the riot wasn't a standalone event. The riot is something that happened in conjunction with and in the context of an attempt to nullify the election. Yeah, and I also think that the, the accompanying argument, and I see you're getting this on Twitter, I know you're not on Twitter anymore, in response to your column, which is, well, there's no way that there would have actually been a coup, which is true. I mean, yeah. AOC is ridiculous when she suggests otherwise. Is irrelevant. Of course. I mean, when I hear that, I always think to myself and sometimes say, if our standard is, well, this doesn't count because these people were morons and they were ineffectual, then there was no Trump presidency. Well, also, we have laws against attempted murder, too. Sure, yeah. Conspiracy and all sorts of other things. The, the fact that it ultimately could not have succeeded is a testament to American stability, but it doesn't let the people who tried off the hook. I don't understand that mm. argument at all. And I don't have quite your confidence that it couldn't have succeeded. Um, not quite in the way that people like AOC say, but in terms of provoking a constitutional crisis that ended up um, in violence and disorder and um, 
and lack of clarity and certainty about the government and who's in charge. Um, I think that was a possibility. If it hadn't been for a number of previously obscure and unheard of Republican, for the most part, state and local election officials, um, it would have got a lot closer to that. And on that note, I would Which is say... why such people are being rapidly replaced by the Republican Party. It's also why we shouldn't nationalize our elections. Absolutely. Yeah, that's uh, something worth emphasizing. I think it's one of the strangest developments in politics in my lifetime that the federalized nature of our elections and of our country helped to repel this attempt by Trump. And the first thing that the opposing party did when it got into power is say, let's abolish it. Yeah. It's a myopic. True. Foolishness all around. Anything else we should talk about or should we wrap it up on that happy note? And are we going to podcast again before Christmas? Well, I think we're not because I will be out of range, essentially. Out of range. Well, all right. Merry Christmas then or happy Christmas, I suppose. Happy Christmas, they say. Happy Christmas in the UK. Well, I'll say Merry Christmas to you and you can say Happy Christmas to me and then we'll all go our happy way. Talk to you soon, Charles. Bye-bye.